Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, welcome. Joe McCall, Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. How would you like to learn how to go from 7K to seven figures? Does that sound spammy? Well, maybe it does. I don't know. I don't care, but it's true. And we've got a special guest today talking about his journey from $7,000 to seven figures. If you translate that and you do the math in your head, that's over a million dollars. Not too bad, right? But is it all rose-colored glasses and flower petals and easy-peasy lemon squeezy? We're going to find out. We're going to talk today to a guy named Sumner Healy. And I just found this guy on YouTube. He's doing really some awesome things on YouTube. And I thought, let's get him on the podcast. And this is actually the first time I've met him. He seems like a nice guy. We'll find out. I'm sure he is. I know he is. He's got a good reputation in the industry he's doing. Here's what I like about Sumner. If you go watch his YouTube channel, he's doing what he teaches and he teaches what he does, right? He's open book and he's doing deals. It's hard to find people, isn't it? in real estate that are actually doing what they teach and teaching what they actually do. So there's, you know, we'll find out today. I'm going to ask him a lot of questions about what he's doing, but there's no secrets in this business, right? Like Sumner's a good guy. I think he's living somewhere really cool, not in the United States. I may be wrong. We'll find out here in a minute, but uh, it's going to be a great little podcast talking about like, okay, Sumner, if you were to start all over again, what would you do? How did you go from $7,000 to something over a million dollars? doing vacant land. Is it really that hard? Is it that easy? And the market is changing a little bit, isn't it? And so we're going to be talking about these kinds of things because you need to be prepared. If the market is changing, which way is it changing? What are the directions it's going in? And how can we best prepare ourselves for that as well? So we're going to be talking about that. But real quick, this podcast video is brought to you by simplelandkit.com. Go there right now. It is my land flippers toolkit you get for free. It costs you $0. And if you're not happy and you don't like it, I'll refund your money. But at simplelandkit.com, you're going to get my contracts, my scripts, my checklist, my direct mail swipe file, how I talk to agents, what I say to them. You're even going to get a software I created where I show you in the software, it actually, it analyzes deals for you. You put in some inputs and it analyzes a deal. It gives you three different options for what you could, what the property might be worth and what you should offer. It's pretty cool. I love it. And then when you click submit at the very end, it gives you the actual contracts, the ones I use that you can send to the seller. It even gives you an email that you can send to the realtor if you wanted to. Uh, and one of the things that it does that's not a lot of people do, I used to do this a lot more in houses, starting to do it more with vacant land now, is to give the seller options. Here's a cash offer. Here's an owner financing offer. And I'd be curious if Sumner's ever done that either. But like maybe giving the seller a little higher price, a little higher price, if they would be willing to carry back some of the financing. So anyway, go check it out at simplelandkit.com. It's yours completely free. And go there right now because I might change my mind. I might soon say, you know what? I'm going to start charging for this thing. And I keep on wrestling with my team on whether we should or not. So also real quick, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Give me a thumbs up. And I want to see some comments down below. Let me know what you think of this stuff. I'd like to know if questions that you have for Sumner, questions for me, I'm in there all the time answering comments. Also, let me know what else you'd like to see on my channel. I've been putting a lot of time. I just had breakfast this morning with my camera guy and we're planning uh, two days a month now. We're going to be filming more content where I might be at the on the golf course. I might be in the, um, in the virtual golf 
simulator and he's going to we're going to be talking and we're going to be going to properties. I'm going to show you some of the original deals that I did. We're going to drive to them and see them and I'm going to be teaching more content from a video guy like actually filming me and I'm going to be mic'd up and all that kind of crazy stuff. So I'd like to know from you what kind of content do you like? What would you like to see more of and stuff like that? And finally, one more thing, if you're listening to the audio version of a podcast, glad you guys are here. Please subscribe to this channel. Subscribe to my podcast. Leave me a review and a comment. I'd appreciate that. Okay, cool. Can we bring Sumner on finally, please? Sumner Healy, how are you? I'm good, man. That was a, that was a heck of an intro. That was awesome. Happy to be here. here. That was good. I loved it. Okay. I will say I'm not anywhere too exciting right now. I spend six months out of the year in Vegas. So I'm in Las Vegas. Right now. You're in Vegas now. right now. Okay. So where do you spend the rest of your time? So I was living in San Diego. I was looking for all the tax hacks and I was like, I just got to move four hours east. That's the, that's the best hack. Move to Nevada. So six months a year here, San Diego, traveling around. I just got back from Costa Rica. So I, I try to do a, a good bit of traveling. So you were in Costa Rica, but you're just there for a few weeks or a few months? Yeah, two weeks. We had our live event here in Vegas. I wanted to decompress, went to Costa Rica. I was going to actually look at some projects down there. I got a little spooked. It's like everything's for sale. There's a lot of really interesting land development opportunities going really? on, selling to expats and stuff like that. But it just felt like a bubble. Like literally, I'm driving on every road and there's just for sale signs on everything. Really? And these locals are just you know pricing things to, to the mood and beyond. But there's a huge opportunity. And I think maybe now is not the time, but not taking the direct to owner stuff that we do and applying that to other countries, but the value add stuff, I do think is applicable elsewhere. But in a place like Costa Rica, all cash markets, there's like hardly any lending. There's no off market. Everything's on market. It was very negotiable. So kind of interesting. What's the um, what's the rental market like? Like Airbnb, can you rent nice places that are furnished and live and work? How's the internet and all that good stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It's, dude, it's pretty developed. In terms of Central America, it's probably one of the more developed areas. It, honestly, it's probably a little too like Western-y for me. I like to get off the beaten path. I, I had gone down there when I was a kid. And coming back, I'm like, this place has changed, man. I mean, a house could be 800K to a million bucks where we were. Yeah, not cheap. Um, but you can get great Airbnbs. And we were staying at spots for 100, 150 a night that were super cool. Pools, kind of jungle vibe, great internet. So definitely a good place. Or, to huh? get On the beach? How close were you to the beach? Yeah, so we started at like central in Costa Rica, going to all the volcanoes. I'm a sucker for volcanoes. I always tell people, if I wasn't a land investor, I'd be a volcanologist. I, I just love wow. it. Uh, so we're driving through there. We went to Arenal and... Poes, I think it's probably pronounced that wrong. We went to Tamarindo, which is on the Pacific side. So that's a coastal town, kind of a tourist trap. Honestly, I don't know if I would recommend going there unless you like like the resort style vacation. But I, I want to get out there and, and be in the middle of nowhere and adventure. Uh, so that was fun. We went to a dirt bike. My girlfriend and I, we did like a 70 mile dirt bike ride one of the days like up along the coast, all dirt. Wow. Rides. That was probably the highlight. But yeah, man, super fun. I will say this was the year. I mean, I've been kind of delaying gratification for a long time. I always tell people I've been putting life-saving dollars into my life account, just like chipping away. And this year, I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to cash in on some of that. I don't know the exact number. I probably took 15 or 16 trips this year. I will say the nomad stuff is overrated in my opinion. You can travel and like do the bare minimum, but if you're in a state where you're trying to progress and be proactive, it's just, we're slowing down the travel next year. Okay, cool. Now, where is your YouTube channel? What, how can people find you? Yeah, I think you just type my name, Sumner Healy. You'll find it. I don't even know what the real YouTube channel name is, but if you type in Sumner, if you type in Sumner, you'll probably find it somewhere there. I think we we started that summer of last year, so 2022, when we made 1,500 videos. And Holy, playing the volume game, but I think quantity informs quality. So I like, I just started off and I sucked. So I was trying to make a lot to get better. So you'll find some of them. So what do you do on your YouTube channel? What are, What are some of the things you like to talk about? Yeah, I do. I mean, it started kind of as like a there's a way to document. I won't bore you with all the details, but Last year, I kind of had a early midlife crisis, I guess, to some, to some extent. 
I've been in the land business since 2019, and I've been building businesses since I was since I was young. Honestly, I kind of have like that classic lemonade stand story. There were always arbitrage businesses, though. I just was always looking for the hack. I was arbing books and anything I could arbitrage. I was just getting my hands on them and flipping. So I've always been in flipping businesses. And they're good for cash flow. They're terrible for fulfillment, right? And so I, I definitely really fell in love with the land business. It really connected. And there's a whole reason as to why that is. But after being in it for whatever, three years, I said, dude, if I die and I just like on my tombstone, this guy just flipped a lot of land or knew how to arbitrage dirt. <laughs> That's not very cool. So I started documenting and I'm yeah, I'm not Mother Teresa, but let me just use this, some of the skills I've learned in the process and share. And then one thing leads to the next, start taking coaching clients and yada, 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 yada. The rest is history. So again, I mean, I, I still think there's a lot more for me to do on the fulfillment side of things, but I will say like with no hyperbole, it's actually, it's really changed my life in terms of just my day-to-day existence. It's also made me a better land investor, because hmm. I've, I've got to be on the cutting edge and think about yeah. kind of taking care of the hundreds of folks inside the community and giving them information that's not, wasn't working two years ago, but it's working today. And I think when you come from a place of teaching, it's like, it's always just the best way to learn to it. It's just, it, it's frankly, it's made me a much better land investor. Oh, it's made totally. me more passionate about the business. Yeah. Totally. I, I learned more from my students. Yeah. Um, I learned some of my best things, stu- stuff from my students because yeah, it's just important to stay on the cutting edge. Well, there's so much data you gather, right? If you, if you have hundreds of people executing on your strategies and you get feedback from that, it's like, dude, I learned way more than I could on my own. So yeah, I totally agree. All right. So talk about your little journey into this. Um, you got started yeah. land investing in two, 2019. So four years yeah. ago, you started with 7K, $7,000. So what did you do? Yeah. And frankly, I think that's a little clickbaity. I forget the exact number. It was some 7,000 some odd dollars. And now I, I had a little bit more in my bank account, but that's what I had set aside. I said, you know what? I'm going to split test this thing. I'm going to start with this amount and I'll see if, if it works. I'll keep on going with it. And like I was saying in the, pre, the pre-call with you, at that time, I'd been interested in, in real estate trying my real estate strategies, wholesaling is kind of the thing on my mind. I was going down the YouTube wormhole and I had to watch some of your videos. So this is very, very full circle. And that was even before 2019, it was a little bit before that. I had a few different odd, odd businesses here and there. I did an internship for Raytheon. I thought maybe I'll try this corporate thing. I came back from that, moved back to San Diego and started knocking on doors, seeing if I could flip houses or wholesale houses. And I started looking up online for tax delinquent lists for houses in San Diego. And you probably know this, the tax delinquent lists are always different for every county. Some are really oh, yeah. easy to get, some are like a pain in the butt to get. The one in San Diego is a pain in the butt. Mail a check and get a CD-ROM or something like that. And so I found in, oh God, what's it? Elko County, Nevada. They had it hosted online for free, just a PDF for CSV that I downloaded and started handwriting notes. My girlfriend and I, after work, I would just handwrite notes. We probably sent probably a couple hundred, nothing too sizable over a couple of weeks and started to get my first calls back. We didn't actually get a deal from that campaign, but the fact that I was getting calls back from it was stunning. I spent the last six months door knocking with, with no traction. I'd done a little bit of handwriting for letters for that. Wow. Zero traction. Not, not a who, did you, who did you learn that from? I did it. Well, yes, I did and I did it. So I was, I was kind of a, a school of hard knocks guy. I wasn't dogmatic in terms of like choosing one person in terms of the educating. So I listened to a Jack Bosch podcast that was on, I want to say Bigger Pockets. It's, it's a couple years old. I watched probably every Land Academy video, like literally, there's a lot of them. I was in uh, the Facebook group for Land Geek, and I was just kind of sticking these things together, right? At that point, I wasn't even creating offers, though. I was just just neutral letter. My name's Sumner. Here's my pretty girlfriend. I want to buy your property. Like, let me build some trust and give me a call. And so, I did, again, I didn't get any deals from that, but I did get phone calls. And I got really close to closing a deal, fell apart. I didn't know how to value it. I was just really stuck on my whatever it was, 500 an acre or something like that for this five acre. But it worked enough to say, let me go explore a little bit further. And so I actually went and used Click to Mail and dropped some campaigns and, and uh, Prump, which is just west of where I am today. It's in uh, Nye County, Nevada. And got my first deal. And the rest was history. It's a little buy for 
I don't know, 1100 or 1200 little infill lot in Pahrump and sold it for like 3200 a couple of weeks later on Facebook. And I was hooked. Man. When did you start making real good money doing it? Yeah, it took me a while. So it started in 2019. I didn't really go super full time until January 2021. So I, I was working a job at that time. I was really scared to leave. My first calendar year, so 2020, we did 60 some odd deals, like 62 deals, six figures in profit, but nothing like super sizable. But I was just a little Nancy. I was just scared. I'm like, I, I got to wait, got to wait, got to wait. And it, the opportunity cost got so high with that job that I realized, what, what the hell am I doing? I'm making $3,500 a month here. And I've made more than my salary in the last 12 months with a brand new business. So I went all in 2021. Business went crazy. We did well over seven figures that year. Our business has gone through a lot of iterations though. So when I first started in this business, I was an opportunist. 2019, 2020, I had no idea what I was doing. I would buy anything that came my way. I was not dogmatic with the markets I was working in. Just give me a lead and I'll find a way to make money on it. Which served me then, doesn't serve me now at all. So I started going and saying, you know what? I need a little more of like a, a strategy for this business. And so I went down the wormhole of the land geek stuff. And 2021, we built up a notes portfolio that it's like 25, 30,000 a month. We did that in 12 months. So while we wow. did like- Whoa, 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 whoa. Just wait a yeah. second. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. 25 grand a month in notes, income from notes in so I months. months. Yeah, it's actually a little, it's a little different than that. So the beginning of 2021, I was using joint venture money. And so I bought a few, uh, bought about 15 properties in North Carolina. It's a very weird story. I put them in a package and sold them off to like this small private equity firm in, in Florida. I have no idea why they wanted to buy them, but we had them all tied up for like 170. And I think we sold them in like the high 200s or low 300s. So that was pretty cool, but it was a lot of pain and I hated to manage other people's money. I'm like, I never want to use private money again or joint venture money. And I was taking on anyone that had a little bit of money, I'm saying like five grand, yeah. I would take you on. And those are the worst investors you could take. All these guys wanted an update every hour from me. So I was so jaded by that experience. In April or May of that year, I said, you know, I'm going to go build up a terms portfolio and live that passive income lifestyle. So really at that point, I probably had like 2,500 a month of terms uh, money coming in. So it was really from April to the end of December that we got up into the, the 25th. And it was lumpy, right? Not every month was so, like on the dot the same. So whose money, did you, whose money did you use to buy those, those lots? Was it your own? The notes, the note deals? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, the, that was just taking the lump sum from 2020. And when I did at the beginning of 2021, I mean, I walked away with, you know, like high six, mid six figures from, from all those deals combined. I was living like a monk. You know, I was living in a 400 square foot apartment. My burn was probably two grand a month. I was just okay. pushing everything back into the business. And those notes deals that we did, I mean, I was buying the worst inventory you could buy, but I found ways to buy properties for a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. I would get my basis back in like the down payment or, or a month or yeah. two. And so the cash conversion was really quick on them. So I did that until the end of 2021. I realized the issue with that business model is if you want to grow, you need a big liquidity event. You, just for me to start that business, I needed what happened at the beginning of 2021 to happen again so I could grow from there. Because I, I did start running out of cash. Yeah, it doesn't seem sustainable. If I want to build a team or scale marketing, I'm kind of painted in this corner. I said, okay, I need, I need bigger deals to create what happened in 2021. And I went down the kind of the big deal route, in quotes. And this is really what we teach inside of Liat nowadays, what we call a mid-market deal. So 25K to 250K. These are the deals that have the highest concentration of buyers, in my opinion, qualified buyers that can pay cash or can even get financing for the higher end. And they're big enough to support having deal funders come in or some kind of private money come in, right? And so that was the year where we did seven figures and that was 80-20. Now to that point, it's majority cash for the last year. It was like 80-20 majority finance. So that was a, a big year for us. So are you still receiving income from those notes from a couple Yeah, of our note portfolio is still, still growing. I mean, we still add probably 750K to a million dollars a year of new note value. So I think it's probably a 35, 40 grand a month right now. We don't really, really optimize for it, but- 
That's really, really good. I mean, that covers your living expenses, obviously, right? That covers uh, maybe your operating expenses for your business, probably covers marketing expenses for direct mail, right? So like a lot of people listening to this, they just want to make five, 10 grand a month. They'd be, they'd be happy with that. But what's, what's fascinating to me is when you talk to people that have already passed that, still not satisfied. They still want more. So I, maybe you can answer this any way you want, but like, why not just like live in Costa Rica, kick back 25, 35 grand a month is really good. Why do you want more than that? Yeah. There's a quite, as a, yes, a good question, a question I ask myself ask often. I think I have a huge fucking chip on my shoulder, to be honest. And I think I have for a multitude of, of reasons for my childhood. And this has been my outlet to, to learn who I am. Just well, you're competitive too, it seems like, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's never been about, I mean, honestly, like, it's never really been about the money. I still live a pretty simple lifestyle. It's definitely changed from a couple of years ago, but still relatively simple. I just love the game, dude. And I think that yeah. if I didn't have an outlet like this, I would have an existential crisis because the scariness of what life actually means if I'm not distracted is, is, kind of, is kind of scary. I think any human feels like that, right? And so I'm not saying it's the healthiest habit, but it's just kind of what's manifested in my life. So, dude, I've never been, I don't think I've ever been satisfied a day. I think I'm grateful. But I don't think I've ever, I don't know if I ever will, to be honest. Yeah, I just thought of this book by a guy named, is a pastor, Rick Warren, called Purpose Driven Life. Have you ever heard of that book? You should read it. Okay. It's a Christian book. I'll give you a warning, but it's I very, very good. I'm yeah, I'm open. I'll, I'll take a note of that. Rick Warren. Yeah, and I'll send you a link later. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. It's really good. He wrote it 15, 20 ago. And he's a pastor down in Southern California somewhere. And I, I was born and raised in the LA, San Diego area. So I'm very familiar with that yeah. part of the yeah, country. Yeah. Okay, so you were selling these notes and you were you were doing this where you're buying little lots for a hundred bucks, selling them for I'm gonna guess four or five thousand bucks. Something like that, yeah. So you're you're one of those guys. You're one of those guys. Okay. Because yeah. I, I have students all and I don't go into those areas because but I have students like Joe, how can I make any money on these lots? Because people are selling them for like four or five thousand yeah. dollars. Now I always say, well, they'll those are the guys that are buying them for a few hundred bucks, buying them for a thousand, selling them for five thousand, and they're selling them on notes. They're just doing it for the hundred, two hundred dollars a month, fifty dollars a month for four or five, you know, ten years or whatever. So is that kind of what you were doing? Yeah, yeah. In essence, and I think the only reason we were able to buy them at such steep discounts, like I really do think steeper than than most. And I'll just give this away here. I don't think it's the best strategy, but it's still it's still effective. It'll get you somewhere. Again, this is what it is not what I would do if I was starting over. But if you want this, you can take it. So what I would do is I would go find all these defunct subdivisions. They're out there, right? Just the ones that just never really cut off the ground. There's a lot in the Southwest, but they're all over the US. Not so much in the Midwest, but you'll find them in the Southeast as well. So I'd go find these defunct subdivisions. And I'd go categorize uh, by who owned the most in those subdivisions. For whatever reason, sometimes they're LLCs, sometimes they're just random owners. I just hoarded and collected these properties. And I would only go after portfolio deals. And so these guys had really no way to liquidate them. They rarely knew what they were actually worth. A lot of cases, they've never even been to these properties. There's no intrinsic connection to them. And so yeah. I remember I bought a third of a subdivision in Colorado. I think it's called Deer Valley Springs or something like that. It's in Alamosa. Someone here will probably know what I'm talking about. And I bought like literally a third of the subdivision, like hundreds or not hundreds, dozens of properties. I think I bought it for 15 grand. And we probably collectively, if we, if, we can't, if we count in the turnover of notes and reselling them and all that stuff, we probably made 300, 400 grand. Wow. We still haven't, we haven't, they're still not even all paid off. And so you can play that game. There's a couple issues with it that I have. One, it's a very slow moving game. Like these markets don't have a ton of liquidity. So the way we were able to move these is we're so aggressive on the dispo side. My belief is nowadays I want to be really aggressive on the acquisition side. 
if I'm working in great markets and I'm buying great assets, this will kind of takes care of itself. We'd have to stuff this down people's throats. I mean, generating hundreds of leads to sell one deal. I don't think it's the most ethical because we know a high percentage of people are going to churn year one, like 30, 40% of them in some cases. And they're really hard to fund, right? So like, I couldn't really bring in. I mean, I could maybe get debt, but ugh, I don't want to go down that route. So it's a hard business to scale with other people. You can't necessarily hire a realtor to sell a $4,000 <laughs> no. lot for you. No. And that's why there's opportunity though, right? Because yeah. the the sellers, like their hands are literally tied. I mean, lands are already hard to sell. These things are damn near impossible to sell unless you're offering terms. Interesting. I've often wondered, what if you bought them on terms and sold them mm-hmm. on terms? There are people that do that. I mean, you're scraping pennies at that point. And like, yeah. I, I don't know. I'll tell you what we do now with owner financing. Like we t- say now or, or save it for later. No, let's, please go ahead. This is good. Okay. So yeah, I've always been keen on how can we create value by owner financing from sellers. And so this is our first year really kind of embarking down that. I'm not the first person to create this by any means, but it's really easy. So we look for states that have subdivision exemptions, right? There's 12, 13 states out there that have like really easy, lax subdivided laws. So it's like major, minor subdivisions. And then there's just like the loophole that makes it very easy. So for example, Texas, 10 acres and above. I, I, in Wisconsin, you can do 10 acres and above with no survey. Like all these, these states out there, there's some that are very friendly. The little hack is it's typically going to be a red state. Typically red states have better land use. So we go and find these properties. We were buying through cash, subdividing them, flipping them. What we started doing is just creating uh, owner finance offers to the sellers and then essentially doing note wraps or getting partial releases. So owner financing, subdividing, selling off. And that's really cool. We just, yeah. That's interesting. I like it. Okay. <laughs> you're gonna, yeah. We just did a deal uh, on market actually in Texas, in Milam County. This is what's cool is like you can do these deals on market because we can still pay a premium, but our cash on c- cash is crazy. We did a deal. We bought it for 200 and some change, 10% down, 7% interest. 20 year AM, five year balloon. We'll probably make 250, 300 grand, but we're putting in you know, 20 grand to control the property. It's crazy. That's interesting. So you're buying with owner financing, then you're, you're going through all the work of subdividing it into smaller parcels and you're selling them one off at a time with owner finance. Yeah. Or we can get a partial release and sell them for cash. It's, it's either or, whatever you want. Depends on what kind of market you're in. Uh, like if I was in West Texas or someone that doesn't have much demand, I probably would have to sell them on notes or you can sell them cash. The, the, the key there though, and again, you could do this with more extreme subdivisions, but the key is to find the exemptions because it's, it's as easy as getting a survey. It's a walk in a park recorded with the county. And you're, so I'm looking for the loophole. And I really want to play off that. Is that by state or by county? Yeah. So there's going to be state kind of whatever mandates or restrictions or whatever it may be. And then there will be differences county to county. So what that might look like is in Texas across the board, hey, 10 acres and plus, you just need a survey. That's it. But and one county might say, hey, to cut in a road, it can be dirt or gravel. And the other county says, if you want to cut in the road, it has to be. So there can be slight new one. Interesting. So then you're, you're targeting the bigger lots, bigger property owners. You're sending direct mail. Is that what you're doing? We do a blend. I mean, direct mail and texting. Our, our direct mail has definitely changed this year. So like last year, we averaged 25,000, 30,000 mailers a month. Uh, we've kind of flip-flopped that. So now we do about 75,000 texts a month. And we're a little more lean and choosy with where we send mail, usually in markets that have proven themselves. Or we'll also go and take non-responders, bad numbers via text and mail to them. So kind of whittling down our... Texting. How are you making that work right now? Yeah. Because yeah, we yeah. just had major changes the last few months. Major. Major. So to my understanding, I'm not a TCPA lawyer. Those are, those are being voted on in December and wouldn't go in effect until August. So I'm not advising this, but I know many people that haven't changed the opt-in language. I'm not one of them. We have changed our opt-in language. So we are doing everything by the book. But one of the things I recommend for everyone here is have a separate LLC for your marketing, a separate LLC for where you hold properties just to kind of protect yourself. That's one of the first things that we do. Make sure you have a privacy policy on your website. There's just a few things you got to do to kind of be 
within the realm of being safe, but there's still risk. And it, it, frankly, it's a cost of doing business if you do get caught. But don't be an idiot. Don't not have opt-out language. Don't not take people off and they ask you to be taken off. So the way we've had to change a lot of our process around it, the way I look at it, so back in the day, through text, price was our pre-qualifier, right? Because I don't want to let everyone endorse you. So we create price as a way to say, yes, no, you're, you're, you're qualified or not. We'll push them to CRM. Now, the way we look at it is if they're opting in, they're saying, yes, I do want to receive this message. It's already a sign of pre-qualification. So we've really opened up the range that we provide to them from low to high for an offer. And so we've allowed more people into the CRM that or previously we wouldn't. Our KPIs haven't really changed much. Now, we only have, whatever, less than 30 days with these changes. But lead flow is looking the same and contracts haven't changed a whole lot. But we did have to change how we pre-qualify those leads. And one of the things that we do that I think might be a little bit different than some is I train my team on pattern recognition because I know there's certain properties, whether they're rural subdivides or entitlement deals, whatever they may be, that I don't care what the seller is asking, put those into the CRM no matter what, because those are a needle on a haystack and we want those. So how does the conversation go on your initial text with the seller? Yeah. I mean, it's just it's usually open-ended or we're referencing some, some letter that we've sent previously. A lot of these markets we've worked in before. So whether we just sent a letter or not, at one point we have, and so it's kind of like our foot in the door. And mostly we're like, it gets a, a really high response rate. Nowadays, there's that opt-in language, right? So they have to opt in and say, yes, I do want to. They have to do that yeah, first. first. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your first text yeah. is, hey, can I text you? It's silly. Yeah. It's silly. And, it's, and it works. Get it. Well, <laughs> it's killed our response rate, but we've still found to say, hey, the ones that do respond, those people are warm. Again, it's like someone that sends a letter back to your letter. I don't care what they're saying back to me. That took effort and that's a sign of pre-quality. Okay. okay so, so is it like, hey, is this Jim? Do you own this 2.6 acre lot in XYZ County? Can I text you? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, yeah. The language with launch control is more like yes to receive a text and then our message goes out. And it's something like, hey, Jim, we just sent a letter out. I just want to make sure you're the owner of XYZ property or XYZ street or APN number, whatever it may be. They respond and say, well, have you ever considered an offer for it? He says, yeah, I've been thinking about selling. Hey, did you have a number in mind? Oh, I wanted 40000 Cool. Let me go check back with the team. You might have to give you a call later today. And that's if the price makes sense, right? Now, if we're way out of, out of being reasonable. I say, ah, oh, Jimmy, you know what? We're thinking more like 20 to 40, whatever it may be. And then see what he says and then push him into zero or, or not. And if it's like, hey, that doesn't make sense for me right now, add to a drip. If he freaks out, then just remove him from the list. But even if they say no now, I'm going to add them to a drip because why not? And it doesn't, it doesn't actually cost us our, our daily text. So we're really aggressive on dripping. They have to tell me to screw off. I really never yeah. want to sell to not get. So you're using launch control. Yeah. Interesting. So you're registering your numbers in this new LLC that you have for marketing. I'm, I'm surprised launch control is still going on. Like I, I've I been know. hearing from everybody, it's done. It's over. Forget texting. Doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I don't want, I definitely don't want to play the expert. But what I will say, launch control, well, the reason that I use them is they're always on the cutting edge. So again, this stuff, I, I could be wrong. It doesn't get voted on until December 13th. These actually, these rules. A lot of these platforms are preemptively predicting that it will go through and making the changes around them. And logic tools are kind of like spearheading that, in my opinion. And if it does, if, they, if it does go through, this doesn't take effect until August of next year. Again, I could be wrong with the dates, but rough, rough outline. So I think the fact that they're making changes now, to me, is a positive. Ending. I mean, they're run, it's run by lawyers. I'm like, I think they know what they're doing. But there's, there's always been a risk with texting. Always. Sure. I think that, that risk still, still is there. But we're talking about, what, a $5,000 fine or whatever, maybe per message. I mean, I don't know. They, it, it makes us enough money to say, yeah, that's, that's okay in my book. But you still got to be careful. Yeah. Sumner is not an attorney. So don't yeah, listen to anything please. that we're saying here. Yeah. Do this all at your own risk. Okay. So you're, you're targeting what you call the mid-tier properties, I think you said, right? Between 25000 yeah. and 200000 Is that what you said? 
Yeah. So what we teach is a mid-market of 25000 to 250000 Now, if your brand's making new to the land business, that's where I'd encourage most people to go. We do market beyond that. But what I've found is as you start getting into the higher reaches of price, you're not buying those things for 50 cents on the dollar or even less. Right? So that's when you start to have to employ that value-add strategy. And there's a whole bunch of things you can do, but we might buy those deals at 70 or 80 cents on the dollar. So for a new investor, it's like, you're going to come in, use joint venture money, flip one to three deals a month, make 20, 40, 50 grand. Do that for a year or two, and then you can start thinking about bigger. So for us, it's you know probably 50 grand to a couple million bucks. I, don't really, I try to stay away from the lower reaches. Of- okay. So let's say you're, you're, you got a deal in the 25 to $50,000 range. How do you educate us a little bit on how you come up with an offer? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've, I've tried every kind of comping philosophy in the book, at least I think. And what I found is it's not a game of averages. It's not a game of having a high quantity of comps. It's a game of looking for that one needle in a haystack comp that tells us everything we need to know. So I have a little framework. We call it uh, proximity, features, recency. So I think everything in real estate is local. I think if we have proximity, we typically have similar features. So an adjacent comp with similar features, topography, access, whatever it may be, means so much more than another five acre, two miles down the road. And so what I see a lot of people doing is they'll go take averages for an area and they're so crossed up on what things are worth. They, they show me these numbers like, what are you talking about? It's that one comp adjacent or down the road that tells you everything you need. We're just looking for that. I'll take that both on market and off market. If it's an off market, meaning sold. If it's on market, as in it's listed for sale, I'll apply a discount rate. So I might say, hey, look, at most land sells at 70 or 80% of its list price. So both on market and off market, I can figure out roughly what a property is worth. I always go look at last sale date. So what did the owner buy it for? I look at last sale date for the adjacent properties. Are. This is like, this is, I mean, the thing with land, the reason there's such an opportunity here is the data is so fragmented. It's all discombobulated and it's up to you to go find these disparate data points yeah. and put them together to understand what something's so yeah, I mean, we still, we make mistakes here and there. If we get a property where we're really confused on, we will lean on realtors. I try not to play that game. See so many people using realtors as the bottleneck to get answers that they otherwise can figure out. Yeah. So. Yeah. So let's say you, you see that you could sell this property for 50,000 bucks. How do you yeah. come up with your offer that you give to the seller? Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So nowadays it looks a little bit different. So back last year and years beyond, I mean, we're kind of doing the classic 40 to 55%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Use joint venture money, close on it. Nowadays we're, we're actually, we're pretty damn picky. So first off, I'm not going to make a standard cash offer on the deal unless I know that it's kind of a 10 out of 10 in every area. That's because the market's changed so much. So 10 out of 10, I mean, no, no questions with access, both legal, legal and physical, no questions with topo, all that stuff. And if it has any question marks, I'm looking at creating a double close, which we'll still kind of start with that typical 40 to 55% or whatever it may be. And I'm not a stickler. I mean, it really is price dependent. So if I'm on the lower reaches, I can be a little more aggressive than on the higher end. And market dependent, where there's more demand, we have to be a little more competitive with our offers. On those double close offers, though, obviously I'm willing to get bid up a little bit, right? So we, we might end up buying it at 60 or 70 cents. I'm okay with that. I, we always put an earnest money deposit down. I just think it's the ethical thing to do. So we can control these properties for 500 bucks typically. And if they're willing to give me time and mitigate that question mark on the property, I'm happy to pay them. I think it's all. So that was one, like, one of the things that took us a while to catch on to this year is we were taking on stuff that maybe a year or two ago, we still would have sold in 30 or 40 days. It's had just a little bit of hair on it. You know, back in the peak of craziness post-COVID, property has a little wetlands on it. No one really cared that much. They still wanted to buy it if it was in a good market. It's different now. And so for me, it's like, I don't look at double closing as a way to make compressed deals work. I look at it as a way to mitigate the question marks. Now, if it's a perfect deal, kind of 10 out of 10 in every category, we'll cash close. I do want to hold title just so I don't lose the deal. Or we'll look at a value asteroid. That's kind of like- our, So you, our you'll, you'll close on it as soon as possible yeah. if it's a t- yeah. 310. If it's- if it's not, when you say the double close strategy, that means you'll close in a couple, three months if yeah. you find somebody else that will buy it from you. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, it ranges. I'd say three months is the lowest. We, we push for six. We usually get four, somewhere in that range. We'll put a $500 earnest money deposit down. We don't use an option contract or anything. We just use a purchase agreement that has like kind of like power of attorney language that we can go sign MLS documents, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Go listen on the MLS. And you give yourself how long to close? 30 days to close, but four months to kind of market the property. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what? Let, let's talk about what has changed in the last year in the land business. Um, are you seeing a slowdown in buyers buying or sellers not as motivated as they were yeah. before? Yeah. I think that anytime you are transitioning from one cycle to the next, so we're coming off highs from the last couple of years and buyers are definitely drying up, we have a mismatch bid and ask, right? So sellers are still a little hung up on prices from two years ago. Buyers are kind of forecasting the doomsday. We haven't found much of an equilibrium there. So I, I do think it's a little harder on the acquisition side, but not, not too painful. Really where we feel the pain is on the dispos, right? So we're just noticing that a lot of markets have way more supply than demand. And these markets are just stacking with supply oh, every, 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 every month. That's a concern. And so one of the things that we're just ruthless about is picking the right markets, right? So we talked about sell-through rates inside of Leah. Can we go find markets that have 15, 20, 30% of the inventory turning over every single so we created a platform to do that. It's called landinsights.co. And it just goes and scrubs all the zip codes, counties, and goes and pulls all that information. So I can say, hey, show me property, show me markets where every 30 days, 20% of the inventory is turning over and just show it to me in Texas and they'll just populate all of that. So this is, you, you created this website? Yeah. Yeah. It's called landinsights.co. So it's just a, it's a huge data aggregator for, for all the counties in the US. There are some counties that are black holes that we can't, can't gather data on. So as it stands right now, we track sell through what we call sell through rates supply levels, out-of-state, out-of-county owners. We track that every 30 days that gets refreshed. And in December, we're releasing a couple of new features. So we're adding zip codes to that. We're adding median price, and we're adding something called the Genie Index. So the Genie Index tells us how homogenous pricing is. So you'll say, hey, I like this county in Texas. 20% of the inventory is turning over every one month, and that trend is sustainable over the last 12 months. Has a high concentration of out-of-state owners. The median price is 10000 an acre, and pricing is very homogenous. When we look at homogenous pricing, I want to say, how big is the spread from low to high? That Gini index tells us if it's very tight or it's very wide. And if you're a new land investor like coming into this business, I personally think start with blind offers, start with range offers, let that do the pre-qualifying for you. Don't start sending neutral letters until you have a team. And so to do that, you need pricing that's like somewhat intelligible that you can actually price out. I got a little sidetracked there. <laughs> We're talking no, this about is, I'm looking at landinsights.co right now. It is, yeah. it is a premium tool. Yeah. You have to pay for it, but this is really cool. Are you getting your data from data tree or something like that? Are you kind of aggregating data yourself for this? Yeah, we're aggregating data. We try not to, we try to only, as it stands right now, only bring in MLS data. It's like the, the private sales stuff, which probably makes up a third or a quarter of all land sales. It's a little fuzzy in terms of tracking price around that. You can just get a lot of weird blips, neighbors selling to neighbors or things like that. And the same thing, we don't track land.com price. That stuff can get funky too. All of that self-submitted pricing. So I sell a property, I put my own price in, people spoof the system all the time. So MLS to us has the most honesty and accuracy because their standards are. Wow. Yeah. This is interesting. So again, you're, you're showing reports on which counties in the country are turning their properties the fast. So what we, and we break that down by every size range too, right? So it'll say, hey, I, I'm a five to 40 acre buyer. Just show me those markets when they have the highest turnover. And what I found is back in the day, I could throw a dart at the dartboard and buy land in any market and it would sell on a reasonable time frame. That's not the case at all. And so market selection is free. And if it dictates our results, I'm like, let's over-index on that. I mean, of course, the tool costs money, but anyone can do this. You don't have to have the tool by any means. Um, and so cost of mail is the same. Cost of running my team is the same. Let me just work in the better markets. And the thing I hate about Dispo 
is our hands are always tied. I can list it at the right price. I can market it well, but I still don't know when it's going to sell. And so I want to kind of stack the cards in my favor. I think it's a huge thing that's going on right now. I think it's only going to get worse, frankly. What I see tracking all the counties in the US, though, is there's these little liquidity pools, weird markets, weird counties you'd never expect to have unbelievable levels of demand. Now, one of the things that I look at too is not just about how much demand there is, it's about how much is the current supply. So I tell people, try to only work in markets that have about 50 to 250 properties actively listed. Too little, the numbers start to spook. So if you have two properties for sale, one sells, it's got a 50% sell-through rate. Wow, it's not really accurate. Too much supply, by day three or four, your listing's on the fifth page, no one ever sees it again. Like We have to both buy property at a discount, and then we also have to play an internet marketing game of getting eyes. That's that's interesting because there's I, I like to, for me personally, I like to look at where's all the hot activity. In the last 90 days, where have yep. most of the properties been sold in the last 90 days? And you can get that information from Zillow and Redfin. But then one of the drawbacks to that sometimes is some of those counties where there's a lot of solds has a crap ton of active listings. And so one of the things that your challenge then is becomes when you do get a property under contract in that county, you've got a lot of really low actives that are you're competing against. Does that make sense? Yep. So you, you can see, you, you see a lot of solds in the last three months that have sold for $15,000, $25,000, let's say. But you're also seeing some active listings that are for sale for 20. So I, you're wrestling with, well, what should I list my property for? I know they're selling for 25, but there's some actives here for five, 10 grand less. Um, and how do I stand out in this little pocket where there's a gazillion, tons of competition? But one of the, I don't know, it's one of those things I wrestle with because I'm still, if, the, if it's priced right, it's, I'm still selling these deals quickly. And one of the things that I've done lately is I've been more aggressive with contacting the buyers directly who have been buying in that market. At the same time, I'm contacting realtors who have sold recently. And my conversation with those agents have been, hey, I see you just sold this property. Would, you, would your buyer be interested in this property that is cheaper? Um, and I pay, and I pay, I've been paying real generous commissions to those agents, 10%. But then going directly to those buyers as well, I'm just wondering like, Sometimes when you go into those markets where there's a lot of sold, you know there's a lot of money there, there's a high demand, sometimes you run into too much competition. I don't know. What, 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 what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Well, it, it depends what kind of business you want to run. Do you want to be inbound or do you want to run the outbound game? Like I just had a Leah member do exactly what, double close. Once they got it from 40 and sold it for 130, it was like technically looked like a landlocked property. There was an easement to it. It's a very weird parcel, but he saw it adjacent to it. A realtor had listed a property and sold, calls up the realtor, said, sure enough, yeah, this buyer would probably want to buy this thing again. Never even made it to market, sold instantly. That's cool. Like, I, and that's just kind of going out hunting. I, I would rather cast the net and let them come to me. But I think it's different strokes, different folks. I think both work. What I found is that there's a pricing thing that you're talking about, right? So markets have a ton of supply. We have to be competitive. I think someone, uh, Land Academy says the next logical sale or whatever it may be. I think that's true. We have to compete with what's actively listed today, not what sold yesterday. But the thing that I hate is I can be priced right and I can have a great listing. And if I just, if I don't catch it at the right time, my listing is gone. Buyers is like on Google. People don't go to the third or fourth page. You know what I mean? And so in those markets, I think to make them work, you have to play the outbound. Which if we look at our business, we're selling a couple hundred properties a year. That's a hard thing for us to do. I'd rather just eliminate that work entirely and work in the, the lower supply markets. But again, I mean, different strokes, different folks. And what I've learned in the land business, a lot of ways to make money. And they all kind of work. They all have pros and cons. Yeah. It just kind of depends yeah. on what business you want to run personally. All right. So let's say you were going to go into Florida, big market, tons of people there, right? right? And there's some counties, there's three or four of them that are like a thousand properties every month. 
Sucks. Right? In those yeah. little areas. So if you were to pick a county in Florida, how would you do how would you do that? Yeah. So one of the things that we do for folks that are just getting started in land, I first say, choose your avatar. What kind of land buyer do you want to be? Right. I don't think being an opportunist makes a lot of sense. You can make money that way. What I find is you get into this paralysis analysis. Well, I buy some infill, I buy some rural recreational. Choose, choose your own adventure. But if I look at our business, we buy typically 10 acres plus, and there's really no cap on that. So first thing is I go, I go look at Florida, I just start narrowing down. First off, I, where's the inventory that I like? So creating rules for what you actually go after. If we look at what we do in our business, my favorite thing to work in is these weird little tertiary markets. They're these small rural towns that have an ungodly amount of demand. You don't really know why, but they just do. We're doing an entitlement right now in a town called Brownwood, Texas. Let's put that out there. This is a podunk little town, dude. I mean, it's probably got, eight, it's got like 18,000 people. Housing inventory turns over every 90 days there. And they can't keep houses on the shelf. It's just everything flies off the shelf. Now there's some macro trends. There's a 3M plant. There are some things there, but these are the things that I love. I love. These are called micropolitans, I think is what they call them. There's these little towns in the US that are typically rural that for whatever reason, like punch above their weight class. That's what I look. So when I look at Florida, I'm not looking at that subdivision with 5,000 records and 2,000 properties for sale. That's just not me. Yeah. I don't want to play it. I also think that typically those properties, you're kind of in a race to the bottom with people because you're selling homogenous inventory. When I go buy that 40 acre with two-sided road frontage and hold up whatever Florida, there's probably not another property on market like that. And that's a competitive advantage. To me. So that's, that's how I would do it, right? Just based off of my own business. But that all starts by defining who are you as a, as a land investor and kind of creating rules around what deals you buy and what markets you work in. And that makes everything easier. I'm sure you experience this with your students where people are just like, Joe, I don't know how to pick a market. I just sit on it for weeks. So like create a rule around it becomes a lot easier. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I am often saying, follow the demand, follow the money. Like, um, yeah. where's... Oh, where, but then they, okay, well, I want to go into Charlotte County, Florida. <laughs> just see, there's got to be a counterbalance. Demand can't yeah. be the only thing, right? I think there has to be some kind of bandwidth, like don't go beyond this and don't go be below this because then demand can look crazy when it really isn't, right? I, that's my belief. You know, um, do, do you ever play with priced? I, I play a little, a little bit. I, I haven't used it ever for pricing mailers. Years ago when I was in um, Clint Turner's mastermind. Yeah. Price, like, I think it had just come out and everyone was really hot to trot on it. And I, I used like the, uh, whatever, the free subscription, but I've never paid for it or used it long-term. The, the thing that's interesting, um, they have this research tool and there's different, like it'll look up all the counties and based on their research from what they've scraped on land.com, Redfin, Realtor, all of them, and the data they're getting from data tree, you can do filtering criterias on what they have a sold to listed ratio in the last 12 months, which is interesting, yeah. where they look at how many solds versus how many listeds. So ideally, you'd think the higher the number, the better. That means there's more solds per active listings. And so I was just wondering if you've ever looked at this. There's also a, a ratio they have called parcels on market ratio, where how many parcels are in the county, how many are on the market. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so that they also have days on market. You could filter yeah. that. There's a hundred different ways you could look at this and you can get stuck in analysis paralysis for sure. Um, yeah. So let me ask you, let's say you were to start all over again and you had seven grand in your pocket, right? Yeah. What would you do today knowing what you know now yeah. in this market? I would do it a whole lot different, man. A whole lot different. So first off, I would only put that money towards operations and marketing. I wouldn't even dare to think about funding my own deals. You're out of your mind if you're funding your own deals now. Yeah. Good. Too much cap. I mean, there's like big box name deal funders, which have good enough terms, or you can go find private money. So yeah, that's the first thing. Could probably afford to send out 13, 14,000 mailers, plus have a little bit for my CRM and all that jazz. 
what I would like before I even start blasting out any mail, I'm going to spend over index on finding great ones, right? So again, I'm going to start by saying, what kind of land investor do I want to be? Well, I want to be a rural recreational guy or a rural infill guy or an infill guy, whatever it may be. Select what kind of asset you want to go after. So what would you choose? What would you be for yeah, your first? Personally, I would go rural. Yeah, first I'd go rural recreational. I'll tell you why. One, I think it's a much more resilient asset class. Like houses are less houses are being built. People still want rural recreational land. I think it's always going to be in style. I think actually as the world gets weirder and scarier, yeah. people want self-sufficiency. You know, 40 acre with cows and a river. It sounds pretty nice when the world's looking a little daunting. I think it's always going to be in favor. I think COVID showed us that, especially with remote work, people no longer have to work in cities. You can go live in Podunk wherever and still make a uh, San Francisco salary, but live on a farm. Yeah. If we think about the, if we think about humans, it's like what's more familiar: living in cities or living out in nature? Living out in nature, I think we all know that to some capacity. So I think there's going to be a resurgence of that. I already think there is. I think it has more use cases, which I like. If I have an infill property, the use case is limited to one thing, and if it doesn't perk or it doesn't have the utilities, kind of worthless. My 40 acre in North Carolina, the soil might be terrible and it might not perk, but someone can still shoot their guns on it or put an RB or whatever. Or hide their guns. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the other thing that I like about it is you have more exit strategies, more options. Yeah. Right? So typically, we have more acreage. There's just more that we can do with it. So we've got a 57 acre property right now that we're turning into, well, we're, it's three lots, two are adjacent, one separated. We're selling one of those properties. It's 10 acres. So we've got 47 acres. We're doing that 47 acres into 76 infill lots. I can't create rural recreational land out of infill properties, but I can create infill out of rural recreational land. Well, I like that. I always want to be playing the game where I've got multiple exit strategies. Same thing on like the finance side. Like, you know, I can use owner financing on these yields and subdivide them. Can't do that. On it. We just got a lead. Uh, we sent an offer out today for a property in Texas. We're partnering with the seller and subdividing. So we're giving them their basis plus 10% of what we make on it. Okay. And we get to chop it up into, into five, five acre lots and sell them off. So I just think you've got more flexibility. So that'd be the first thing. Next thing is I would set rules for the market selection. So if I were you, I'd say no less than 50 properties, no more than 250 properties in inventory. I want to see at least 15 to 20% selling through every month. I want that consistently over a 12-month period. I want to see a similar trend on the one month is what I see under contract, right? So if the one month is strong, but there's nothing under contract, it's a little concerning. They should kind of be in parity with one. That's as close as we can get to like a real-time pulse on what's going on. I want to go and download that data. And I want to think about how can I actually create offers for this? I don't want you going and doing neutral letters. I don't want you cold calling people. I want you to do the proactive work for creating offers and allow the pre-qualified leads to come to you. When I first started this business, I was working a full-time job. I couldn't be on the phone all day. So nights, weekends, odd hours, I create offers. I can do that whenever. And the few leads that came to me, they're somewhat pre-qualified. We still got job, but it made the time on the phone a lot easier, a lot more effective. So actually price these things out, I think about three things. I think about one, if you're in a rural market, usually there's going to be homogeneity for, for acreage ranges. So hey, 10 to 20s trade within a pretty tight band. When I say homogenous, I mean the low to high price in the last year is less than 100% delta. So 7,000 to 14,000 an acre. If it's less than that, we're kind of in a homogenous band. With offers, you just have to be right enough. You don't have to be right. The one thing that I do recommend for everyone is like you can go export the data from Redfin or wherever you get your data. Redfin is probably the best. Remove the outliers. Every data set's going to have like the landlocked property with a swamp on it. Like remove that. It's not a fair data point to create offers off. Create offers, have an answering service. I use Pat Live, 300 bucks a month. Don't dare take those initial calls. It's a waste of your time. People are just going to scream at you. The good ones will make it into your CRM. Do your homework, call them, try to fish out what their problem is. Don't give them an offer off the rip, right? They called you from this letter. What's the issue in their life? There's always something big or small. Yeah. Figure what that out, what that is, and try to marry a price to that. We use like the offer in our letter to pre-qualify, but I rarely do deals at that price. Sometimes I get bid up or sometimes we come way down, but most deals are never going to be at that price. We just use that yeah. kind of filter. That's it, man. The one thing that I will say that I wish I knew earlier, as we started doing subdivides and entitlements, these more 
advanced deals, I guess. I was so scared to do them. There's someone else has already done those deals. So go partner with the person that's already done that and learn yeah. the strategy. So you get a big old honk and subdivide deal, just partner with someone, right? Make make half of what you're going to make, but learn a lot. How do you find those guys to partner with on to subdivide the deals? Yeah. I mean, subdivide, call me. I'll, sub, I'll work with you. But there, yeah, there's definitely subdividing entitlements is, is a very nuanced industry within a very nuanced industry, which is land investing. So it's kind of a needle in a haystack. You can go with stuff like Discord or Facebook groups, just put a shout out and just say, hey, has anyone ever done one of these deals before? Great. Go on YouTube. Great idea. Yeah. yeah. Someone out there's done it, right? And they, they, again, they don't have to have been like the ultimate expert. I am not the ultimate expert on entitlements, but I've done I've done two, so I know a little bit. I could kind of hold your hand. Yeah. And dude, what I found is like a lot of these guys, these guys and gals that do these more intricate land strategies, you won't find them online very easily. But someone like me or someone like you probably has a connection. Like you're one or two yeah. connections away from knowing everyone in real estate. So just, just ask. You'll find someone. That's really good. All right. So somebody new is hearing us talk about this and they're thinking, all right, well, I'm going to go after the recreational land. Uh, they're, they're, they're thinking, where am I going to get the money to buy this yeah. deal for 50 grand? I don't have it. Yeah. What, what do you tell them? Yeah. I think if you're just getting started, I would use joint venture money. So essentially, they're going to give up a slice of equity. They're going to cover closing costs, purchase price. You're not taking on debts. You're not taking on all this risk, right? You don't really know what you're doing yet. So I think they also act as a barometer to say good deal, bad deal. So it kind of keeps you a little more safe. They're all over the internet. I mean, again, just just Google it. We have deal funding inside of our program. Most programs. So are, are you talking about the the land funding companies? There's a bunch of them out there. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of different ways you can skin the cat. You can use what I call the big box funders, the land funders, the parcel funders, all those people that you know. You're not going to get the best rates, but they're businesses. So they always have money. They respond on time. They They know what they're doing. I would do a few there and build up a track record that I'd go and create my own joint venture mm-hmm. funders and eventually convert those into hard money funders or debt. But you got I love that too, things. because those funding companies, they'll let you know if you don't have a good deal or not, right? Yeah. They're not going to buy bad stuff. It's a really good kind of yes, no test. That's good. Uh, let's see here. You talked about CRM. What, what's your favorite CRM that you like to use? I've, I've used a whole bunch. I've used Salesforce. I've used uh, Zoho. I've used Pebble. I've used Follow Up Boss. Uh, my two favorites are Pebble and Follow Up Boss for sure, for different reasons. I think Follow Up Boss has the better communication tools, so like the internal calling features and drip text and all that stuff is, is probably the best out of anything I've ever used. Zillow just bought them, so I'm sure they're going to get better and better. Uh, but Pebble, in terms of like a database management system and a CRM, is is pretty killer. I'm close friends with the Pebble people, and the amount of feedback that we've given they've actually implemented is unbelievable. They've created a new KPI dashboard within there. It's getting better and better. The one area they still aren't perfect on is the communication side, right? So you have to tie in open phone. I thought they had that figured out. Like they added, they had that. They do. So you can call out of it, but it's still, a, to my understanding, it's still an integration you have to tie in together. So they don't have their own phone system like you're going to get with Follow Up Boss. So instead of Follow Up Boss, I can pay an extra $19 a month to have their internal phone system. And it just it just works really well. The other thing with Pebble, they don't have an iPhone app yet that's coming. I mean, their website is mobile responsive, but it's not perfect. So like our team, a lot of times they're going to take calls on the weekend or odd hours through Follow Up Boss through their phone. And just, it just works really well. Is there a way you could, could you use Follow Up Boss 100%? Yeah, we do. We do. So we've been trying to make the transition into Pebble. <laughs> it's been a very slow, arduous process. Yeah, you can use 100%. We still use like Kanban boards and Trello and do, do a few things outside of it. Our KPIs aren't stored in there, which you can get with Pebbles. So we have separate sheets for that. But yeah, we do we do everything in there. I mean, you kind of have to duct tape it together. It's not perfect. Yeah. So I think if you look at Pebble, it's built for acquisitions, operations, dispositions, you have everything separated. We've had to be a little gimmicky with how we've done it, but we've made it work for the last couple of years. I've been big FreedomSoft guy for the longest time. Uh, I've never heard of them. FreedomSoft was made for wholesalers for houses. Okay. And it's pretty, in my opinion, uh, the 
it does everything I want, except like with follow-up boss, you can send in receive emails inside of follow-up boss, right? So the, when, the, when the, somebody responds, it shows up in your follow-up boss account. With FreedomSoft, well, you can send outbound emails, but when they reply, it goes to your Gmail inbox. So you kind of have, you got to go there to get it. The, the only other thing I, uh, FreedomSoft is still kind of lacking is um, you can't get lists from FreedomSoft, although they're, they're going to be doing that soon within the next few weeks. So you can do your outbound direct mail. I upload my list that I download from Priced into FreedomSoft. I can send mail uh, once a day, once a week, outside out from FreedomSoft. I get my phone numbers from FreedomSoft. It's really good. The communications by phone and by text are really good. You can do automations where it does automated text follow-up and automated direct mail follow-up and automated email follow-up if you want. But yeah, so there, there's nothing out there that's perfect. I'm always looking for the perfect one. Yeah, nothing exists. I will wish that uh, the like a simple fix from the fix the email stuff coming into the right inbox. Honestly, outside of that, it seems like everything I would want in a CRM. I think the one thing that follow-up boss kind of drops the ball in, I don't know if it's different with FreedomSoft. I can create automations for text and for email, but they follow the rules really closely. So I can't do multiple drip texts. I can only in one campaign, I can have one drip text. Can you do multiple in FreedomSoft? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. You yeah, could do nice. it every 30 days for the next 20 years if you wanted to. Um, they, awesome. they do require opt-out text in all of yep. your texts, which you should have anyway. And they, they won't let you do mass outbound texting like you do in launch control. But yeah, it's... It's really impressive. The, I know the guy Rob Swanson out of Denver uh, very well, and yeah. um, I like. It. I'll show you sometime if you want to. If you want to see, yeah, I'll just take a look. Man, I can't imagine switching another CRM, but maybe I can mm-hmm. refer other folks inside the community to. I'm just I would wait until um, wait until they add. They already get data for houses. Tons of they get all of that. They have it. They just need to turn on the switch for vacant land, and um, so now they're cleaning it up. You can also do your skip tracing inside of FreedomSoft as well. And you could do outbound cold calling campaigns, but only do one number at a time. You can't triple dial outbound. And they're using some pretty cool direct mail integrations. But anyway, yeah, there's a lot of good tools. Sumner, it's been really enjoyable having you on the show. Appreciate it. And uh, how can people get a hold of you? If they're interested in maybe partnering with you on some of these subdivide properties, you know, they um, or they want to learn more about what you do and how you do it, how can they reach you? Yeah, YouTube's a great place. Uh, just type in my name, Sumner Healy. If you go landinvestor.co slash Discord, you can join our Discord for free. We just broke a thousand members. Yeah, YouTube's probably the best place. That's where I'm the most active. Thank you so much, man. And I uh, hope you have a, a good one. hope you go back to um, Costa Rica soon. Yeah, it's been fun, Joe. I really appreciate you having me on, man. This was awesome. Thank you. Have a good one. We'll see you guys later. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.